Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Arctic ice cap is melting a lot faster than anybody thought it could, and that may signal a sudden snap in the world's climate. What these records show is that the climate system can jump up and bite you very hard and very quickly. And as we continue to load the atmosphere with greenhouse gases, we may set ourselves up for one of these rapid changes. Also, efforts to find clean energy solutions are popping up in some unlikely places, like the East River in New York City. Our team together has built six turbines that capture the kinetic energy of the flowing water without any dams. Uh, They're sort of like underwater windmills. And as the tide goes in and the tide goes out, they capture some of the energy and convert it directly to electricity. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Humans are disrupting the climate faster than just about anyone has been predicting. That's the conclusion of a new study of the Arctic polar ice cap recently published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. The study finds that the ice cap over the Arctic Ocean is melting far faster than even the most pessimistic computer models have been predicting, and it follows similar findings about the rapid meltdown of the Greenland ice sheet. Mark Cerez is a senior research scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado, which conducted the study. Thanks for being here, Mark. Oh, it's my pleasure. So what's the big difference between the uh, computer models that are, are cited by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their most recent assessment and the data that your team uh, has been looking at? Basically, all of these climate models are saying that we should be losing sea ice. So there's this consensus between the different climate models regarding this loss. And this is very, very strong evidence that we're starting to see the impact of greenhouse warming. But when we actually look at the data, our data records from satellites and from other sources, we find that the observed rate of decline is roughly almost three times that what the models are projecting. What it's telling us is that these models are actually underestimating the loss. They're not quick enough. It's telling us that this loss of sea ice is rapid and the Arctic is on this fast track of change. In your view, what are the computer models of global warming missing? Well, it's it's not quite clear. It may be that the models are missing some key processes, feedbacks. In the Arctic, one of the things that is at work there is what we call the albedo feedback. Albedo is just a fancy word for the reflectivity or the whiteness of that surface. Idea here is that if we have some warming, that melts some of this highly reflective snow and ice surface, and that starts to expose darker areas of ocean underneath. That means that those darker ocean areas now absorb more of the sun's heat. That causes further melting, further warming, and further melting, and so on. So it's a vicious cycle, if you will. Well, all of these climate models are supposed to treat those sorts of processes, but it may be that they're not quite getting them right. Now, of course, the sea ice won't affect uh, sea uh, level around the world. It's already floating on the, on the That's ocean. That's correct. That's Archimedes' principle. But what are the possible impacts of the loss of Arctic ice for the rest of the world? 
Well, there's one recent study suggesting that one impact could be an extended drought in the U.S. West. Okay? In other words, we have a shift in the atmospheric circulation associated with this changing Arctic refrigerator, and one response of that was drought in the, in the western U.S. Other studies were pointing towards some rather pronounced changes in patterns of precipitation or weather in Europe. Okay, so those are just a few examples. The problem here is that getting at these particular regional impacts is still very difficult in these models. That changes will occur seems to be quite clear. Just how they will pan out, that's what's difficult to get at. And these are the things that concern me. It's not so much what we know that worries me, it's what we don't know. So in many ways, nature uh, doesn't move in a smooth line to change, but it has quantum leaps. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether it is the flower that's closed one day or open the next, or you know, uh, an electron that's in one orbital around uh, a nucleus of an atom, and then in, with the energy level changes, it's in another. To what extent does your research indicate that climate shift may be more of a quantum nature, maybe making a leap rather than making a smooth transition? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what we, I, I think we are probably seeing now. When we think of the Arctic, uh, we often think of this idea of tipping points, that say if we thin that sea ice down to a fairly vulnerable state, uh, a little kick to the system can send it over the edge and set it very quickly into a new state. We see that it, evidence for that in terms of the sea ice cover. Another example is what we're seeing with respect to the Greenland ice sheet. We'd always thought that the Greenland ice sheet would kind of slowly melt down and slowly contribute to sea level rise. But what we're seeing now is that that's not the case. For example, what we're seeing there is that there's surface melt going on. This melt water is trickling down to the bottom of these immense glaciers that drain the ice sheet, literally lubricating the glaciers, and so that they can actually now slide more easily into the Arctic Ocean. We didn't think that that sort of thing would happen so quickly, but it is. And we see the same analogous sort of things in the sea ice cover. What these records show is that the climate system can jump up and bite you very hard and very quickly. And there's growing concern that as we continue to load the atmosphere with greenhouse gases, we may set ourselves up for a tipping point. We may set ourselves up for one of these rapid changes. Well, thank you, Dr. Ceres. It's been my pleasure. Mark Cerez is a senior research scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center and a co-author of a new report on the meltdown of Arctic ice. You can find out more on our website, LOE.org. So how about some good news about the challenge of climate change? Well, there's now an experiment in New York City to make electric power from a way you might not expect. It seems to be clean and certainly has no climate-changing gases, no ugly towers or waste products. From the East River of New York City, Beth Fertig of member station WNYC has our report. The East River is actually a tidal strait that flows along the east coast of Manhattan, connecting Long Island Sound to New York Harbor. For some engineers, it's not just a body of water, but a powerful potential source of energy. You have, first of all, a big, fast river. You have to have fast currents. That's what it's all about. It's embedded in civilization. It's not, you know, in the middle of the Arctic or something. Dean Corin is director of technology development for Verdant Power. 
We're standing on the shore of Roosevelt Island, a residential community which sits in the river between Manhattan and Queens. It's off the coast of this skinny island that Corin and his engineers are preparing to operate a group of tidal turbines. All of us, our team together, has built six turbines to go underwater here that capture the kinetic energy of the flowing water without any dams. Uh, they're sort of like underwater windmills. And as the tide goes in and the tide goes out, the flood and the ebb, uh, they capture some of the energy and convert it directly to electricity. Electricity that can be used to power homes and businesses. On a bright sunny morning, Corin's team stands on the shoreline while a barge delivers equipment that can only be installed during a slack tide. But when the tide stops, we gotta go. You can only do this stuff when the water's not running. As Corin climbs down a ladder to the water's edge, a huge crane takes four white rectangular frames off the barge and gently lays them in the water. Each frame is about 20 feet long and contains three ultrasonic devices. They were especially designed for observing fish. Verdant can't get a permit to operate until it proves to state and federal agencies that its turbines won't hurt migrating wildlife. But Corin predicts that shouldn't be a problem. The turbines actually turn very slowly. They're five meters in diameter, that's 16.4 feet, and they turn at about 34 RPM, uh, quite stately. Also, the leading edges are very rounded and blunt, so there's only a very small area that could actually hurt fish if they were to hit it. And those tests are just beginning. In a former shipping container that's been turned into a control room, Verdant has spent several months studying the habits of East River wildlife. Analyst Hannah Abend uses her computer to look at underwater images captured by a different sonar device last year. So I'm going to show you an example of what a school of fish looked like before the turbine was actually in the water. Verdant conducted a test run with a single turbine at the beginning of this year. Abend says she saw a few herrings, a striped bass, and a cormorant, but they stayed away from the turbine, which was located about a quarter of the way out in the river. One of the interesting things I've discovered from analyzing all of this data is that generally the fish hang around the rocks. They hang around during slack tide when the turbine isn't moving at all because the water is really quiet. They don't like fast currents. They also don't hang out that far. They like the safety of the rocks. And so this bodes very well for having turbines in river environments like this. The test turbine operated for more than a month until engineers discovered a problem with its blade. In that time, Verdon says it generated about 8,000 kilowatt hours during active tide cycles, enough to power a couple of homes for a year. The electricity was used by the Gristides supermarket on Roosevelt Island, proving the East River could generate power. Verdant's founders compare that to the flight of the Kitty Hawk because tidal power is still in its infancy. Alternative forms of hydropower were first explored in the 1970s, but they were abandoned when the energy crisis ended. Now that global warming has triggered a new interest in renewable, clean sources of energy, researchers in Europe and the United States are once again experimenting with tidal power. But there are some obstacles. It's a lot easier to do things on land than it is in the water. The turbines may look like windmills, but they're actually much more complicated, says Robert Thresher, who has studied tidal power as director of the National Wind and Technology Center in Denver, Colorado. You have to get out there, you have to have boats, you have to have crews. If you're going to put a foundation in, you can't just dig a hole with a backhoe and pour a foundation 
And then you have, if you're in an estuary, you have a salt water, which is a corrosion issue that you just don't have with wind turbines. That's not to say it isn't possible. Thresher is a big proponent of alternative sources of energy, and he says tidal power has great potential. Unlike wind, tides are predictable because they come in cycles. It's just going to take more research and more money to resolve questions of environmental impact and commercial viability. Because people haven't done it before, the permitting's not worked out. When people are permitting, they don't know what to worry about, so they worry about everything. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission says there are about 50 applications for permits by companies experimenting with tidal power from Washington State to Florida and Maine. Verdant says it's spending more than $6 million on the East River project. A third of that money alone is going toward the fish monitoring and other regulatory and permitting issues. If they can pass the initial hurdles, Hannah Abend and her co-workers envision a day when a couple of hundred turbines off the coast of Roosevelt Island could generate enough power for 5,000 homes. And because they're underwater, she says there's little fear of neighborhood opposition. A neat way to look at it would be this is sort of like the quietest electric plant ever or power plant ever because, you know, you'll never see them. (laughs) And if everything is working well, you'll just get power from the current. Verdant's new turbines are being tested just in time for bass migration. The company is also applying for permits to test in Long Island Sound. For Living on Earth, I'm Beth Fertig in New York. Coming up, back to the future with some of the best ideas from the past that never quite made it. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Regulators in Delaware recently gave preliminary approval to an offshore wind farm, another sign of the remarkable growth of wind power in the U.S., Electric power from wind has quadrupled in the past six years, and the business has set off a land rush for some of the best spots for wind towers. Now, wind power generates no pollution, but many people in communities from California to Cape Cod oppose it. They say the huge turbines not only ruin views, they can also harm birds and other wildlife. Now a panel of top scientists has weighed in on the wildlife impacts of wind power, and the report is giving momentum to the movement for more regulation of the high-flying industry. Now here's Living on Earth Jeff Young in Washington. Jeff? Well, Steve, it's instructive to take a quick look back at one of these wind power disputes that took place not far from Washington. Mountaineer Energy was the first project to reap the winds of West Virginia's high ridges, and the local community was split. Some eagerly embraced a new source of energy and revenue. Others worried that migrating birds and mountain scenery would be lost. So the company scaled back the project and pledged to watch for birds. But just a few years into operation, another problem popped up that no one saw coming. Bats were being killed by the hundreds. They found over 400 bodies and estimated between 1,400 and 4,000 bats had been killed at that site. That was orders of magnitude higher than any other facility had ever reported. That's Ed Arnett, a biologist with Bat Conservation International. Arnett trained dogs to sniff out bat carcasses and tracked bats at night with thermal imaging. He thinks bats that roost in trees are attracted to the windmills, perhaps during mating or migrating seasons. Biologists then looked at other wind projects on forested ridges and found those, too, were killing lots of bats. The mid-Atlantic mountain ridges have some of the best wind in the region, and developers propose about a dozen wind farms there. 
That has Arnett worried. And when you think about a region or the entire North American continent with the expansion of wind, and you think about the numbers of turbines and the fatality rates, the cumulative impacts uh, add up very quickly and become very alarming. Wildlife officials had long wrestled with bird deaths at wind farms. Now they have bats to worry about, too. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Director Dale Hall says wildlife deaths are a black mark on a green industry. Wind-generated electrical energy is clean energy. However, at this point, we cannot say that wind energy is always green energy. That's not the image the wind industry wants. Laurie Josowitz of the American Wind Energy Association says wind companies partnered with groups like Bat Conservation International, birders, and state wildlife agencies to find solutions. I think the industry is really interested in being a good environmental steward and wants to maintain and protect the, uh, you know, the green brand that we do have. And I think the steps that we're taking, uh, especially as such a young industry, we're really hoping to set an example. But we're still a small industry, so we want to make sure that we're not doing things that unduly, you know, prohibits the industry from developing. But a recent congressional hearing on wind power and wildlife cast doubt on those voluntary efforts. The hearing's title alone hinted at growing skepticism in Congress. It was called Gone with the Wind. Unfortunately, the collaborative efforts to address the impacts of wind projects on birds have been a failure. Michael Fry of the American Bird Conservancy testified about the wind industry's reluctance to follow recommendations on where to place and how to operate windmills. The Fish and Wildlife Service is at work on a set of guidelines. Fry says they should be made mandatory. This is the only energy sector that is unregulated. We would like green energy, but you really have to enforce some laws. You have to put teeth in something or they're not going to comply with anything. The Fish and Wildlife Services Hall says industry compliance is sketchy. For example, when the bat deaths came to light at the Mountaineer facility, scientists wanted to test turning off turbines at key times. The wind company refused. That wind farm is in West Virginia Democrat Alan Mollahan's district. Mollahan is among a small but influential group of lawmakers who want to regulate wind power by making companies follow wildlife guidelines in order to receive tax credits. Wind energy developers are not going to voluntarily take all the steps that are reasonably necessary for the protection of wildlife. They just aren't going to do it. Mollahan urged the National Academy of Sciences to study the matter. The Academy's report is the fullest to date on wind power's energy contribution, environmental benefits, and wildlife impacts. Here are some key findings. By the year 2020, wind could produce 7% of America's electricity. That would offset about 5% of the country's overall greenhouse gas emissions. Wind turbines kill somewhere between 20 and 37,000 birds a year. That's far fewer than are killed by buildings, cars, or cell towers. Even cats kill many more. But the Academy warns that some bird and bat populations could be threatened as wind power expands. And the report urges government agencies to take environmental impacts more seriously when planning wind projects. That planning depends on data, which the Academy also found lacking. Bat biologist Ed Arnett says scientists have a lot of work to do. Decisions will have to be made on the compromise, quite frankly. What are we willing to give for this renewable energy source? How much habitat loss is acceptable or how many fatalities are acceptable? We just simply do not have enough information. We're not there yet. 
And so the answer, dare I say it, Steve, still blowing in the wind. Okay, Jeff. Thanks for your report. Uh, But stick around for a moment. You know, some of these local fights over wind projects can get pretty nasty. What do you think this National Academy report will mean for those local disputes? I think both sides will find some ammo here, but I think the report really points to a way out of these uh, not-in-my-backyard kind of disputes. How so? Uh, with government providing a better system for making these decisions. You know, and I think in a lot of these disputes, what we've seen is uh, some of the opponents overstating the wildlife impacts when their real interest maybe was protecting their view, protecting their property values. Uh, on the flip side, uh, some wind supporters were hyping wind as this sort of cure-all for global warming, while at the same time wearing blinders when it came to dead birds and dead bats. And so I think the take-home message of the Academy report is we need to stop arguing simply yes or no on wind power and instead start talking more about how can we do this more responsibly. And likely that's going to mean some kind of regulation. But uh, don't the states and local governments already regulate wind power? They, they do. They just don't do a very good job of it. And uh, this study says that those agencies, they're just not well equipped to assess uh, wildlife impacts, uh, especially the cumulative impacts of a lot of wind farms in a small area. And one of the report's authors says uh, he thinks the wind companies could benefit here, avoid costly lawsuits if we had a, a better way to honestly assess the trade-offs and decide where windmills should go. Jeff, just briefly, what else is up on Capitol Hill regarding energy? I'm reading a lot about fuel efficiency standards for cars. Uh, What kind of traction is that getting? Well, there's a bill working its way through the Senate that could uh, boost the miles per gallon that cars and trucks get. That's a big deal. And there's this interesting agreement in the works with the companies that make light bulbs. If that goes through, it could mean the end of the old incandescent bulbs that waste so much energy. Well, we'll be taking a closer look at both these issues in the coming weeks. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Science fiction as a means of prediction has long been a cultural staple. The fictional canon of Jules Verne that shot people to the moon took less than a century to morph into the very real Saturn V moon rocket of the Apollo program. 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit. We have, we have liftoff. And the ray gun of Buck Rogers back in the 1920s foretold the laser. Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Is he all right? Doctor. (laughs) I see. What's happened to him? Why is he lying here on the table? Uh, Don't worry, Wilma. Don't worry? Why is he... simply lying here, comfortably asleep, under the influence of my electrohypnotic ray. The electrohypnotic ray... Are you sure this experiment won't hurt him in any way? Absolutely sure. Well... But what about all the other fantastic stuff we heard about, especially during the high-tech boom that followed World War II? You know, the time machines and X-ray vision don't seem to be anywhere in sight, not to mention flying cars or robots that do your laundry. Daniel Wilson is author of Where's My Jetpack? A Guide to the Amazing Science Fiction Future That Never Arrived. He says some of the technologies of yesterday's tomorrow actually were invented, including the jetpack. 
So the jetpack was invented by a guy named Wendell Moore in the early 60s, and he did it on an army grant, and essentially it's just, a, it's really a rocket pack. It's, there's a chemical reaction that happens between really pure hydrogen peroxide and, and silver, and it's just an expanding reaction. So when these two get put together, it's sort of a controlled explosion that thrusts you into the air. Now, this controlled explosion only lasts for about 30 seconds, which is a huge drawback, and it's why the Army didn't renew that grant, <laughs> and it's why there were only a few copies made. At this point, unless you want to steal one from the Smithsonian, uh, you can actually buy one from a, from a Mexican guy named Juan Lozano, uh, and there are a couple of other companies that will rent these out with celebrity impersonators flying them around. Uh, the problem, though, like I said, is that there are a lot, jetpacks are much more sexy than they are practical, and that 30 second time limit is a real killer. Hmm. How many people have been killed using these jetpacks? None that I know of, yeah. I was interested in that. It, it's true that Wendell Moore, so this is. So wait, great. it's, a, it's I mean, the safest form of transportation. <laughs> it's an experimental aircraft, yeah. No one's, no one's bit it yet. Uh, although Wendell Moore, you know, he tested this himself, and ultimately he shattered one of his knees, and he never uh, decided to strap one on again. <laughs> so what inspired you in the first place to write this book? I mean, how did you come up with your list? Well, first of all, I talked about things that I've always wanted. You know, so I grew up as a kid reading comic books, and in the backs of comic books they have all these things that you can buy. You know, you can buy a real live hoverboard, and then you get it home and you realize that this is made out of a vacuum cleaner and it's got to be plugged into the wall. <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they conveniently forget to mention that this is going to have an, an electric cord. Or, you know, I went on several very misleading rides at Disneyland, and, you know, I never really let go of that. As a kid, you're really optimistic. You believe all these things are going to happen, and then you, you kind of reach a certain age, and you just suddenly say, what happened to the future? So I, I reached that age, and uh, I wasn't doing anything else, so <laughs> I decided to go ahead and write, uh, where's my jetpack? So here's your list of things that uh, the past told us we might have in our future. Let's see. There's the jetpack, of course, and then the Zeppelin, the moving sidewalk, a self-steering car, a flying car, dolphins as a guide, <laughs> vacationing in space, food pill, ray gun, space elevator, and, of course, the space mirror. So... What item that you included in your book were you most shocked to discover it really does exist and, and it's functional? Well, well, functional. See, see that's the thing. <laughs> a lot of this stuff exists. And in fact, that's kind of the, that's my whole point behind the book is that, you know, I'm not saying, oh, look, here's a pessimistic view on our non-future. Instead, I'm going through every one of these and I'm saying, look, this really exists or it has existed in the past and nobody wanted it. <laughs> so the... Technology that I was really surprised exists at all, even though it doesn't exist the way we want it to, is teleportation. And the thing that surprised me is I'll wait, talk wait, to wait people. Wait a second. You're saying beam me up, Scotty, works? Right. So, you, you know, I talk to people on the street and, and, or in bars, you know, and they have no idea that physicists routinely conduct teleportation experiments. You know, this is real. We live in a world where you can teleport quantum particles over arbitrary distances. And the problem is that it's only quantum particles, so things like photons, uh, not things like people, which, you know, is kind of good because the way teleportation actually works is a copy is made and the original is destroyed in the, during the process. So it's questionable whether you really want to do that to yourself. Now, one of the things 
that was uh, back then that we haven't seen yet is smell-o-vision. <laughs> and, you know, I think I'm ambivalent about that. Uh, you know, some of the things, some of the topics I chose to talk about in the book, I chose them just because they re- reflect this wild optimism that was around in the 50s, you know, about technology and how great it would be. And smell-o-vision, I think, is, is an example of that where people run toward some goal really without thinking about what it might really be like. And I think that's great. <laughs> I think that's, I, I love that kind of creativity. And so obviously Smell-O-Vision was not a big hit when it was used in one movie called Scent of a Mystery. And the the smells during the movie actually clued people in. You could You could figure out who the killer was based on these smells. But again, Smell-O-Vision is real. Well, I just can't resist asking you about something that was predicted that I'm not sure I'm disappointed that it didn't happen, and that's the mind-reading device. Well, mind-reading devices are here, and they're here in two forms. One form is a lie detector system. So these systems can figure out what you're thinking, or at least figure out whether or not you're lying by using uh, cameras that track the blood flow underneath the skin in your face, and also by using slow motion cameras to look at micro expressions uh, and micro gestures that people make unconsciously. But where mind reading is really interesting is in a medical area where uh, several companies and several academic institutions have brain-computer interfaces. So in the non-invasive sense, this is basically a hat that you wear that's covered with electrodes, and it measures the electrical activity that's going on in your brain. In an invasive sense, this is a subdural implant that's basically a lot of little electrodes that are poked into the surface of your brain. So, for instance, if you're paralyzed, they'll choose to put this in your motor cortex. And then when you think about moving a limb that you can't move in reality, the computer can actually uh, use machine learning to figure out what you're trying to do. Over time, it learns what you're trying to do. And then it, it can actually move a cursor on a screen. Or it can. Uh, there's been an example where a what, for lack of a better term, is a cyborg monkey has been able to use its brain to move a, an artificial uh, limb to, in order to feed itself bananas. And before you ask, uh, no, they did not cut off the monkey's real arm. <laughs> they just strapped it down. So most of the things that you included in your book were things uh, that were promised in movies and comic books in the 50s and 60s and 70s. They, they all suggested that we were going to be in this, well, a utopia of sorts in the future where you know, people could fly cars just driving themselves. We live in a smart house. We would have x-ray vision. So what does that say about what we were dreaming about for ourselves and for society at that time? Well, I think that a lot of people thought that, you know, all of our problems would be solved by technology. And any problem they could think of, pretty much there was a technological solution that was lurking in the near future. And, you know, above and beyond solving problems, I think that there was this wild optimism that technology was not only going to solve our problems, it was going to entertain us, you know, in ways that we could never imagine. So there's smell-o-vision, there are moon vacations, and man just exploring all the environments that we'd like to explore, uh, you know, with impunity. And I'm hoping that we continued <laughs> toward that goal, because I do want to have a space vacation, and I still do want that hoverboard. Daniel Wilson is author of Where's My Jetpack? A Guide to the Amazing Science Fiction Future That Never Arrived. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me. That's-
is my latest scientific achievement, my newly perfected electro-hypnomentalophone. The scientific research and experimentation that led up to the development of this machine was started way back in the 20th century. Why, I always thought that the people back in the 20th century weren't much better than savages in what they knew about scientific things. Oh, not at all, Wilma. Oh, we owe a great deal to the scientists of those days. Living on Earth is online 24-7. And if you missed any part of this program or any other recent show, you can stream it or download it at LOE.org. And the Living on Earth mailbox is always open. Drop us a line at comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Our mailing address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And our listener line is 800-218-9988. Coming up, one of the nation's premier botanical gardens struggles to stay ahead of the climate curve. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation and from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund, celebrating the 2007 Goldman Environmental Prize winners. Learn more about each winner at www.goldmanprize.org. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The San Joaquin River is the lifeblood for millions of Californians and millions of acres of farmland from the Bay Area south to Los Angeles. But the water from the San Joaquin doesn't flow south on its own. Massive pumps lifted out of engineered channels to get it to California farms and cities. And according to the California Sport Fishing Protection Alliance, all this pumping comes at too high a price. The water project decimates populations of endangered fish. And the group sued to protect the fish under the Endangered Species Act. A judge has now ruled in favor of the fish, and the prospect that the pumps could get shut off has sent shockwaves throughout California. To give us some insight into the conflict, we looked up Tom Philp. He's an editorial writer for the Sacramento Bee newspaper and joins us now. Hi there. How you doing? So they say in the West that uh, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. Do I have that right? You got it right. It's guaranteed employment for me. I write water editorials. So uh, I got uh, it's so-called fish in a barrel out here. There's just more water controversies and anyone has conceivable time to, to write about. And the Delta is our biggest problem. On this controversy, what's the position of the Sacramento Bee? The Sacramento Bee's position is that our Delta is one broken Delta. It is the most important estuary that we have in California. It's our most important source of drinking water. And we have yet to figure out a way to do right by the fish and to do right by uh, using this delta as a sustainable source of water. How did this thing wind up in court? What motivated the uh, sports fishing group to, to file this lawsuit? They have been extremely concerned about certain species of fish that live year-round in the delta, called smelt and shad, etc. And their numbers have been plummeting to lower record, low numbers, and they haven't been able to figure out a way to do much about it. So this lawsuit was a primal scream. It was going to the courts and saying, we don't think all this pumping from the Delta is complying with the State Endangered Species Act. Now, what's the basis of the lawsuit and the Endangered Species Act? The basis is pretty simple. In Under the State Endangered Species Act, you have to have a piece of paper that allows you to essentially kill an endangered species as part of your activity. And the state of California for these pumps, the State Water Project, does not have that piece of paper, the so-called incidental take permit, that allows them to take 
fish, kill fish, as they operate the pumps. So, as I understand it, uh, the uh, trial-level judge uh, issued an order, said, hey, 60 days, these pumps have to be shut down. What's happened since then? A lot has happened since then. The water community has gone into, uh, their blood pressure has risen many times over. They have been scrambling to figure out what to do if, indeed, the pumps were shut down. At the moment, there is a lull in the action. The judge has said, I am going to stay this decision. You, the state of California, have some time to figure out how you're going to comply with the Endangered Species Act. So at this moment, the clock is not ticking, but that clock is still out there, and it continues to have people pretty nervous. So you have the law on the side of uh, the environmental activists here, these the sports fishing groups that say, hey, this is not complying with the Endangered Species Act. And then on the other side, you have, what, 18, 20 million people who really depend on water out of this system. If, in fact, these pumps were shut down, those people would be out of water. Um, how do you get a winner in a scenario like that? <laughs> uh, you, you, you thread the needle is what you do. Uh, Compromise on a big water fight only happens when every side is uncomfortable, that the status quo does not serve anyone's interests, and that not only do we have to change, that change is the right thing, we absolutely have to change, and there is no choice. Politically, there's no choice. Environmentally, there's no choice. Legally, there's no choice. That's only the time that we figure out how to do something around here. What is the correct solution? What's the advice you give your readers as the editorial writer for the Sacramento Bee on this subject? California has to think long and hard about how much water it can safely pull out of this delta and where it pulls the water from. At the moment, we pull the water from the southern part of the delta. And by pulling the water out of there, it causes all kinds of rivers within the delta to move backwards. It really kind of screws up the estuary where we're pumping it. So we have some some questions about how we we manage the delta. Tough stuff. Uh, recently, uh, your governor declared a state of emergency on the source of, this, of the San Joaquin uh, because the Sierra is what? have only, what, 30% of the snow that they usually have. Um, water is getting tighter and tighter, and with the indications coming from research in, in, in climate change, it doesn't look like things could get too easy anytime soon. You're absolutely right. Our dams are real designed to capture this snow melt and then release it, capture some more, and release it. And what happens when we don't have as much snow? What happens when we have more rain than snow? We won't be able to capture as much water. Uh, we And we will be facing some tough choices about how much agriculture we have, how efficient it is in using water. We're just going to have to get a whole lot smarter and a whole lot more efficient, and we're going to fight over this for a long time. So the lawyers are going to make a lot of money on this, huh? I, if you have a child uh, that's interested in an, an area of law, I, I would suggest Western water law would be uh, a guaranteed source of income for the next several generations, no problem. Tom Philp is an editorial writer for the Sacramento Bee. Thank you so much, sir. You're very welcome. Take a lush hillside topped with tall hemlock trees, plant a collection of more than 15,000 varieties of other trees, shrubs, and woody plants collected from all over the world, Toss in a magnificent view of the Boston skyline, and you've got the Arnold Arboretum. Harvard University maintains the Arboretum as a public park for the city of Boston, 
a place that's high on the list of school field trips when spring ignites the park with a dazzling display of fragrance and blooms. On the spring morning, some work crews are out spraying oak trees for winter moth, the bacteria that kills insects. Other workers fan out to snip and prune in advance of the Arboretum's biggest event of the year, Lilac Sunday. More than 200 different varieties of the fragrant blooms will be on display on Lilac Sunday. We've come to Arnold Arboretum to talk with its senior research scientist, Peter Del Tredici. He says in recent years, the big day has become something of a moving target. Traditionally at the Arboretum, the Lilac Sunday was around the third Sunday in May, the 20th, somewhere between the 20th and the you know, 22nd, 23rd. But uh, about 15 years ago, we realized that most of the lilacs had already gone by uh, by the time Lilac Sunday arrived. So we shifted the date up, and we now celebrate Lilac Sunday here at the Arboretum on Mother's Day. So why is that happening, do you think? Well, uh, all you do is pick up the newspaper, and chances are there's going to be some story about climate change. And... uh, the blooming of the lilacs, which is really a temperature response, is one of the, the signs that the weather has uh, been changing, particularly here in the Boston area since the 1970s. So things are warmer earlier. Things are getting warmer earlier. Now, what about the fact that there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? That's a fertilizer for plants. Well, that would affect how quickly things grow, how vigorous they are. It wouldn't necessarily affect when they bloom. So in other words, you know, if you look at the amount of ragweed or poison ivy that's proliferating along the roadsides, you might be able to say that that might have something to do with carbon dioxide enrichment. But in terms of blooming times, I don't think that has anything to do with CO2. But, but wait a second, you're saying that the weeds are taking advantage of the more CO2? We might have more <laughs> weeds as a function of this? Well, that is one of the predicted effects of uh, climate change. Certain plants are more efficient at being able to uh, convert CO2 into carbohydrate, and the weeds that seem to be particularly good at that. Let's take a closer look at one of these lilacs. Now, unfortunately, I haven't figured out how to get my microphone to record this smell. But Well, that is unfortunate. That is really uh, sad. Well, this one is, it's got a ways to go. Let's see what the, here, you know, every plant here at the Arboretum, one of the things that's really terrific is labeled here, this particular plant, Syringa vulgaris. This is President Lincoln. This is a very... Uh, an American selection from the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s. This plant is from 1995, and it's considered to be one of the bluest of the lilacs. Really beautiful plant, and it'll be in full bloom. Uh, You know, if, if the weather stays warm, particularly at night, it might even be in bloom for Lilac Sunday. What else has really changed over the last 100 years for these plants at Arnold Arboretum? The other thing that's happened, and this is intensified by the fact that we're in in the middle of a a city, basically, is that uh, one of the byproducts of increasing CO2 in the atmosphere is acid precipitation. And so we have the soils here at the Arboretum, the pH has been dropping precipitously over the last 50 years. And, you know, we have to put a lot of lime on the soil to counteract the uh, negative impact of acid rain. So lilacs are a lime-loving species. And so uh, this area, in order to maintain its health, we have to put a lot of limestone on these plants. 
Are you losing plants uh, because of these changes? The acidification of, of the soil is one of these sort of hidden things that is clearly a, a byproduct of burning of fossil fuels. And what happens when you lower the soil pH is that certain nutrients that are available to the plants at higher pH become unavailable, and aluminum becomes toxic at lower pHs. And so when you change the soil pH, that really changes the whole health status of the plants. And so in terms of they become more susceptible to diseases because they can't get the right nutrients out of the soil. So it's one of those factors that really contributes to the general decline of vegetation. And so bringing that pH back up to, you know, above a pH of five, five and a half is really critical to maintaining the long-term health of any uh, woody plant. So this is one of our research plots here at the Arboretum. We're on Hemlock Hill, which is one of the parts of the Arboretum that's essentially been in forest since the Arboretum was founded. Now these, these, these trees are some big babies. This is, uh, what are we looking at, 100 feet tall here, huh? Or close to it, that's for sure. These are hemlocks, uh, Canadian hemlocks. And the reason I brought you here, though, is that if you look up into the canopy of the trees, you can see how they look pretty thin. In fact, most of the foliage is on the upper 20, 25% of the tree, and all the lower limbs have died. And you can see right through them. And this is the result of, uh, we've had a pest. Uh, the hemlock woolly adelgid from Japan has been infesting this stand since the mid-1990s, and it's, the trees have been slowly dying from the bottom up. Normally, when the temperatures are below minus 5 degrees centigrade, that will kill the hemlock woolly adelgid, or at least you get 98% mortality. But when the temperatures are above minus 5 degrees centigrade, there's relatively little mortality. And normally, people would talk about this as a, as a problem of it's an invasive species that's come in and devastated a native tree species, the hemlock. But it's not as simple as that because, in fact, yes, you have an invasive pest, but changes in the climate have facilitated its ability to... Uh, destroy its host. And so this is one of the uh, things about climate change is that it changes the way species interact with one another. Now we're talking, you know, the world average temperature's gone up actually less than a degree Fahrenheit, but they're talking about, in Fahrenheit terms, two, three, four degrees as maybe the best we could do if we really cut emissions sharply right now. What you see here, what does that tell you what we would see in the future? Well, remember, Steve, that we're in the middle of Boston, essentially. And so in the urban areas, these climate change effects are intensified because of this, uh, it's called this heat island effect. And that just refers to the fact that there's so much pavement and there's so much development that the urban areas are actually much warmer uh, not only in the summer, but also in the winter than the surrounding countryside. So in the urban areas, you get a, a sort of a preview of what's likely to happen on a much larger scale uh, because the cities are warming up much faster than the surrounding countryside. Now, there's a new gardening uh, hardiness zone map that's been issued by the uh, National Arbor Day Foundation. And, and that shows what plants can be planted where, what time of year, and survive and not get hit by a frost. And it, it's now showing that some parts of the country are fully one zone warmer 
than they used to be. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this. Well, we like things, everything to be predictable. You know, we're, we're here in Boston, we're in zone six. You know, we've always been in zone six as long as anybody who's alive can remember. The idea that somehow we're moving into zone seven is just like, earth shattering you know nobody wants to accept it and i i would caution gardeners because that's based on long-term data but the fact of the matter is that every year is independent in other words the difference between climate and weather and so we could still have a very cold winter it's not out of the question we could have a zone six or even a zone five winter climate change doesn't rule that out climate change is really all about unpredictability so yes you might be able to grow camellias if you get it just sighted right but i wouldn't bet the farm on that right now Dr. Peter Del Tredici is a senior research scientist at Harvard University's Arnold Arboretum in Boston. You can find a link to the Arboretum and photos of its famous lilacs at LOE.org. Our visit with Dr. Del Tredici was produced by Living on Earth's Eileen Belinsky. Next time on Living on Earth, the iPod has revolutionized the way we get our entertainment and our information. Now it's revolutionizing one of America's favorite pastimes. I dialed up the pre-programmed call on my iPod, broadcast the song through an external speaker, and bada-bing, there it was, a male chipping sparrow, hormones pumping, singing madly from the branch in front of me. Like magic, dial a bird. Birding meets the iPod next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in front of the visitor center at the Arnold Arboretum. Samuel, you're going to start. You're going to close your eyes right now. I'm going to tap someone, and all of you are going to look at that person. Okay? He's going to try to figure out who did it. All right? Third graders from the Berkowitz School in Chelsea, Massachusetts, play games as they wait to go on a field walk to learn how flowers make seeds. Living on Earth's Eileen Belinsky captured these sounds. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobeck, Jennifer Percy, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Bidget. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. From all of us here at Living on Earth, thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Park Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.